0: All right, Jesse. we're going to skip the small talk this week because we are on vacation. You are doing a little sex tourism in Thailand, and my nephew is coming to visit me. So I'm going to be doing some indoctrinating this week, which, to be clear, is very different from grooming, no matter what
1: James Lindsay says. Uh, so... Katie, I would not do sex tourism in Thailand. It's way too hot. <laughs>
0: Where would you do it? Norway? I don't think they do sex we should, tourism We either. can
1: talk about that off okay. mic. It's fine. All
0: right. So instead today, we're going to re-air an interview we initially put out at the very beginning of this show's existence... Back in our baby days of 2020, that episode was called What a Stupid Fucking Way to Have a Really Important Conversation, because we are fantastic at SEO. And this was a conversation between me and a graphic designer at a theater company. She had gone through a year's worth of diversity training at work with none other than the patron saint of white fragility herself, Robin D'Angelo, after a... Scare quotes. Picture my scare quotes here. Racist incident at the theater. As you will hear, this training started before D'Angelo got famous, but we wanted to revisit this for a couple of reasons.
1: Yeah. So one of them is just it was really early after we started the show. So it'll probably be new to most of you. Um, There have also been, as you may have noticed, a few developments in the DEI landscape in the three years since this episode came out. Uh, And we want to discuss them. So we're going to come back after the interview and talk a little bit about what's changed.
0: Yeah. So one note before we get started. At the time we aired this episode, the guest wanted to stay anonymous and she didn't want to name the theater company where she worked when this training took place. But three years later, she, quote, does not give a single shit anymore. So uh, the theater company was the Seattle rep and the guest name is Shannon Loys, who also happens to be our very own designer here at Blocked and Reported. She is also a great follow on Instagram if you like home renovations and ducks. And if you've already heard this interview and don't want to listen to it again, you can skip forward like 45 minutes and we'll meet you back here to discuss. What happened to lead to your uh, introduction to Robin D'Angelo.
2: Uh, Robin D'Angelo was brought to, uh, on board at the company as a racial sensitivity consultant after we had an incident regarding uh, the N word, and it got really, really heated. Um, there was some publicity about it, even um, in like the local press. And um, one of one of my organization's like immediate responses about the whole thing was that we were gonna um, started on this like EDI journey and EDI that stands for equity, diversity, and inclusion.
0: And so can you give me a little bit more detail about the incident? So was this, did someone call someone else the N word? Was it like that? Or was it more like a sort of microaggression? Well,
2: that would have been really awful, right? If someone called someone the N word, it was not that it was, um, a stage hand was on, was like mic'd into like the backstage, uh, Mike's system. And the stagehand asked a question. This is purportedly what happened. Like, I wasn't there. This is, this is the story. Is that the stagehand asked a question about what they had just heard in the script, um, being spoken online. The play at the time that was being performed was, um, like a mostly black cast. It was, uh, a play about like, African American experience in this, uh, neighborhood in New York City. And, I guess there's like a pause in the script where the character sort of implies a word that's not said. And the stagehand basically asked into the mic, did she just say the N word? But the stagehand said the N word. <laughs> um, and it got out that that was said because there was like an intercom system. And so the cast heard the N word being said. And then, all hell broke loose. Um, There was accusations that the company like didn't initially handle it correctly, uh, that there was some apology from the stagehand to the cast um, for saying the word out loud. But the apology like wasn't enough or, or they had issues with sort of how that was handled. And then there was a big all staff meeting held about it so that it could like all be aired out in the open. And that was... That was that staff meeting was like unlike anything I had seen. It was a fucking shit show, Katie. Yeah, tell me about it. Lots of crying. Oh, white tears? Definitely a lot of white tears, but but in our defense, we didn't have Robin yet telling us that white tears were violent, so <laughs> we just didn't know any better. Um, but yeah, there was there was a lot of crying and and like I do get that people were upset, but I I remember walking away from the meeting just feeling like it was a little unhinged. Um, like a bit hysterical and there wasn't really, it like wasn't being moderated in a way that was sort of keeping the hysterics down. It was just sort of this like open mic format where, well, I should say like first the artistic director stood up and, and he explained like what had happened, that there was this incident and someone said the N word. And I mean, I'm thinking, Oh, holy shit. Like someone's saying the N word in our office is a big deal. And then he proceeds to explain this wasn't directed at anyone it wasn't being used as a slur and i'm like okay that's that's good right because that'd be awful if someone was running around calling someone that and then immediately he followed up with but i want to be clear intention doesn't matter and that was like his underlined point which like come on in what universe does intention not matter it would clearly be worse if this if someone would like Right was using this as an insult. That's how that all staff meeting, and that's how just kind of the tone of the the whole organizational conversation around that incident felt to me. It felt as if it felt as if we were reacting to it as if someone was, um, you know, really being like explicitly racist and like venomous towards another person um, and using like a horrible term, as opposed to asking a question about the script.
0: Right, right, and this is something that. That comes up sort of frequently. It comes up in white fragility. This idea that impact is more important than intent, which does seem to me to be a very like against sort of human nature. I mean, there is a there is a reason that manslaughter has a different penalty yeah. than uh, than murder. That we do sort of make make uh, concessions for accidents or mistakes, but not when it comes to this one this like one particular issue.
2: Right. And I mean, the, the example I've heard that I, I it resonates with me is like if someone in the grocery store. Bumps into you by accident, you say, excuse me, or they say, excuse me, and it doesn't like ruin your whole week. If someone came barreling at you in the aisle and was like, I'm gonna like push you with my elbow, like bitch, and then like pushed you, man, intent would matter. Like that would
0: be that would be pretty unsettling. So intention does matter. In normal human interactions, intention absolutely matters. But within this sort of, um, this sort of ideology, this dogma, and like, all of a sudden, it doesn't. Right. And and I can steel man it, right? I mean,
2: to the extent that, Mm -hmm. look, accidents can hurt people too. Yeah. Impact, like impact matters. I don't think, I don't think acknowledging that, intention matters means that accidents can't also be hurtful. Right. Um, I don't don't think it has to be like one or the other, but.
0: So was the, was the guilty party at this meeting, the stagehand who had, who had said the N word? No, no, no. Um,
2: They were put on administrative leave and I don't think they were at that meeting because they were on leave and then they were away from the company for a while, but then they were brought back as we were like doing these, uh, sessions with Robin and her co-co facilitators. So, and and I mean, technically, I don't think I was ever supposed to know who it was. But yeah, but internally, and people figured it out.
0: <laughs> right, right. So, so the company decides to bring in Robin D'Angelo to to lead these. Uh, what what did you say? Equity, diversity, and inclusion. Yeah, EDI. Uh,
2: I guess the lingo was like we called it like the EDI work. We're going to mm-hmm, do the work. Mm-hmm. and Right, um, got to do the work. Got to do the work. And Robin was initially, she initially paired up with a, so, I mean, Robin is a white woman, as you know, but maybe some of your listeners don't. And uh, she, at least to my understanding at the time, she like frequently pairs off with, um, I, I think typically a, a black co-presenter so that she can be the one that, like, speaks to, directly to the white people in the room. She, uh, you know, she can look us in our white faces and be like, I'm white too, and this is what we do. This is how we, like, run away from racism, and this is how we perpetuate it. And then uh, her co-facilitator, who's, like, a person of color, can can speak more to, like, the the truths of racism and the truths of, like, the lived Black experience. And so that's... That was the pairing. It was, um, Robin and Victoria. And we were, I think, basically slotted to have them do ongoing workshops and these big sessions, like all staff sessions, I think throughout the whole year, but this was like right before Robin's book was published. So she kind of hit the big time in the middle of it. And, uh, And we didn't see her anymore. (laughs) She was really, she left and then uh, someone else came in and like took her place. But at that point we were like more into like the gender and sex part of the EDI work. And then uh, the last session that I was ever part of was the gender expression, like trans, trans issues. Okay. So they're hitting the
0: the whole, the whole bevy of diversity.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We got the whole bevy. It was more than a year. Robin was around for the race stuff. Uh Um, and I've been trying to rack my brain because it was years ago now. Um, I think I can remember specifically two sort of long form sessions that she led, and then uh, and then she did a small group session with like with the individual departments. And so I remember
0: one or two of those that she did with my department. Well, tell me about those sessions. What would take place and um, these in these trainings? <laughs>
2: they were. Four hours
0: long. Oh, my God.
2: Yep. And they were very, very mandatory. Uh, Ah. Like, so mandatory that you had to have, like, written permission from your supervisor if there was some reason you couldn't attend. And then you'd have to, like, prove that you did make up equity work somehow, (laughs) <laughs>
0: if so if you didn't attend you had to like go out and do something else to like
2: yeah or I, I think i think they were doing like makeup sessions um for people who couldn't like smaller sessions with robin and victoria if you couldn't make it to the big one we also had to account for like edi homework we had to there was a point at which we had to tell our supervisor what was like a, an action or a step you took a book you read something you did to like fur, further the goals of edi um like this month and I remember I had said, and it's true. I was reading um, uh, the new Jim Crow, so uh, that was my homework. That's what I said I was reading,
0: and I, I did read it. It was a good book. <laughs> were you like, were you expected to do this for free? I assume they didn't pay you for your time to to read this book or do your outside homework.
2: Uh, they, correct. That that would have been free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one should have to pay you to be anti-racist,
0: Katie. How dare you? How dare oh, right, you? Right. Right. Um, my mistake. Uh, so so what were these? So just take me, take me through one of these trainings. What would actually happen? I would say it was
2: largely like a lecture format and Robin and Victoria would trade off. So like Robin would speak for part of it and then, uh, Victoria would speak for another part and that would probably make up at least half of it. And then the second half would be, would be like a slightly more interactive, um, questions or exercises um it's it was a big staff we're talking like a hundred people so um so like nothing too involved and and (laughs) nothing as crazy as like the baptisms and shit that's like happening right now um in other cities uh sorry to say i don't have anything quite that dramatic to report on but this, this is probably all stuff that like wouldn't be all that surprising questions about like how do you think it's a question is to like examine your own privilege um, or how were you socialized around race? And um, we'd be like asked questions about like sort of what we had just heard. And, and the, the racial lectures really hit on probably everything you'd expect. It was like the real definition of racism is, is power plus prejudice. Right. Um, uh, we would talk about, I think there was, a whole four-hour section on intersectionality. Like, we had a whole day just on intersectionality. Yeah, white privilege, white fragility. We sort of hit it all. If you've ever watched, like, any of Robin's, like, filmed lectures, it, it was a lot like that. Uh, she did demonstrate an apology for us, which was, like, a little a little crazy. Um, and it was, I mean, it was a real-life apology because she had um, – if I remember this right, we had taken a break for lunch and then like come back for like round two. And round two, um, it was now Robin's turn to speak. But she started off by apologizing to Victoria in front of all of us. And I think if my memory is right, I think the infraction, the racism that she perpetuated against Victoria in the previous session that she wanted to apologize for was interrupting her. Like she'd cut her off or something. And so she, she used it as like an opportunity. Like this is how you like repair. And it's all the lingo you've heard. If, if you've read her book, I'm sure she talks about it, but like repairing, repairing the relationship with Victoria. And I, I'm sorry I perpetuated this racism against you and like acknowledged the, the greater context of like white people historically having the, the voice in the room. And, um, And yeah, and made a big point to be unemotional during the apology. That was a big deal is that white women can't (laughs) emote too much or, or it puts like too much burden on the POC and.
0: Right. Right. That's, that's another thing that I find sort of odd about this is it something like that. Like you interrupt somebody, you know, I mean, fuck Jesse and I interrupt each other all that time. That, that doesn't mean that I'm anti-Semitic. It doesn't mean that he's anti-gay or what, or that we hate white people or whatever. That's just (laughs) like when you have a conversation, you just interrupt people. And this idea that if you, you know, if you if you make that all about race, I don't really see how it benefits actual people of color to go around the world thinking that every perceived slight or every sort of interruption or whatever is is a byproduct of racism. Then they're going to see racism everywhere, including where it doesn't exist. And I can't see how that's good for anybody's sort of ability to live in the world.
2: Examining every interaction you have with someone of a different race I, I don't see how that gets us where we want to go. That's true. And I don't know that like organic friendships really ever work that way.
0: Were there any sort of like did you were there incidents in the trainings where you did have somebody have to like apologize to a coworker besides Robin or like any white tier situations or anything like particularly notable that happened during these trainings that you wanna mention?
2: I never in any session I was in witnessed uh witnessed an apology between coworkers. It's um, not to say it didn't happen between closed doors. Um, I, I mean, I, I remember times where people would, would say things that weren't, that weren't very woke and they would get like put back into place, you know, however they get corrected. Like we had this, we had this coworker who she was like a middle-aged lady from, I think from New York. And she like totally fit that stereotype, talkative and kind of loud. And, and, I think she had missed like the first session where we were all told how to speak woke or whatever, because she did not speak woke. She wanted us all to know that she, that some of her best Mm -hmm. friends were black. I mean, you can almost hear (laughs) the gasps in the room. Like how dare she, how dare she use the, my friends are black trope. (laughs) And then she, she said, she said, and race doesn't matter. Like to me, it's a, it's not an issue in our friendships and more, you know, more in my mind, I hear the gasps. Cause now, now she's saying she's colorblind and that's so racist. (laughs) And, uh, and I'm sure she was like put back into her place in some, in some fashion uh, by the facilitators. But like in retrospect, how fucking ridiculous to judge her for that. Cause I, I mean, I can't say my closest friends are black. This lady's probably living in actually much more integrated like diverse life than I am. I've grown up in white cities, and my communities are white. And here she was telling us that like race isn't this huge factor in some of her best female friendships. And instead of that being like a great thing, it was. I just I remember the feeling in the room being like, "Oh, this lady has so much to learn," <laughs> and and then oh, like one other thing too. That's fucking crazy, um, I think. I think the question must have been asked. There was some prompt where the people of color in the room, this is in a smaller group session, people of color in the room were asked if they had experienced racism at our organization. Like a pretty important question to ask if we're going to start a year of this work, I guess. And uh, I had an Asian coworker answer um, that they hadn't, they had not experienced racism. And instead of that being met by the facilitator is like, I don't know, good news. She was immediately shut down. Um, the question from the, from the, the black facilitator was, well, do you think, uh, you know, Asian people in this country have a different experience of racism than black people? And my coworker like gets kind of quiet. She's like, yes. And then the facilitator, uh, Victoria, the facilitator goes, that's right. They do. And then we moved on. Like, why are you fucking asking the question if, if this POC coworkers, you know, answer didn't matter. Like there was no, again, there's just like no curiosity. It just felt like they had the answers already. We were a racist organization because look around, it's mostly white. So we got to be racist. And, and, and even a coworker saying explicitly that like that was not her experience didn't matter. And, and she didn't speak the rest of the session.
0: Well, Asians are white adjacent, according to uh, to the new rules.
2: Probably the weirdest thing that happened was just that there would be times where they would like ask all the POC employees to leave the room, and then they would go off and like have a like a POC like breakout group. And it's probably obvious this is like a very white organization, um, which was made very clear that that was a huge problem. And um, and so yeah, the the majority of us would be like left in the room. With Robin, and then we'd be really talking about like our our complicity in all of this and
0: and our role. So, what was that like? I mean, you so in in her book, in White Fragility, one of the interesting things about it is that she doesn't really talk about success stories. She talks mostly about how she does these corporate trainings, uh, which are usually mandatory, maybe always mandatory. Uh, for people to attend. And then she talks a lot about sort of, you know, the resistance, what she would call white fragility, the, um, you know, uh, women, especially crying, men pounding on tables, people completely unwilling to acknowledge their own, their own complicity. And, and, you know, in this, this like racist white supremacist culture and, and it, people like, it doesn't seem to make any difference. Like she talks, what she mostly talks about is how, it, how it fails, right? How people, how there's so much resistance, which is, of course, just more evidence that right. she's doing the right thing. Oddly, no, um, it's
2: totally unfalsifiable. Um, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, it wasn't in, until retrospect that I saw that. But I mean, yeah, in retrospect, completely unfalsifiable. She would ask us to like check in with like our physiological reactions to things she was saying, and if anything, basically like ever made us feel uncomfortable, it just proved her theory um, that we were, that we were fragile and that this was like hard, a hard truth to accept. Um, and I mean, I can steel man that too. If I was leading, uh, there's a grain of truth there. If I was leading like a group discussion on, on any topic that's difficult, I I see the value in like reminding the group, Hey, like try to be open-minded or, or like listen, or like avoid knee-jerk reactions or whatever. But, but when you say that, this like group of people uniquely is resistant to, um, you know, anti-racism work and that any reaction to the anti-racism work that isn't, that falls short of just like agreement or, or some kind of like submission or what she would call listening, then, then that's just proof. So it's just this feedback system that uh, is proving her right. Like, I don't know that there are, our success stories because the success is in her mind is a is a racist person, all of the white people, like acknowledging that we are, um, you know, even against our will, like racist and complicit
0: uh, yeah, we're born racist. We're born
2: racist and and we can't help it. We were like socialized into this system, she would say. And uh and so so you end up with like like the wokest of us in the group. And I definitely count myself among those people. Cause I was not critical about this uh, as I was going through it. Like Robin was, Robin was like one of my heroes at this point. Really? I like, well, yeah. And I, I mean, I hate to say that, but I was just really didn't want to be racist. And, and I, her book wasn't out, but I like, I'd read one of her articles and I'd watched a video and, and she is like, she's a compelling speaker. And, and a a lot of it's nuts, what she says, but she says it really well. (laughs) And so I was on board and I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be fragile. And I wanted to like do the work that, that I needed to do. And so me and like the other like woke or whatever millennials in the group, I remember the, probably the most like version of it being a success story is just that we started to kind of run up tallies in these sessions where we would try to come up with you know, ways in which, yeah, like I'm, I'm racist and I'm I, and, and trying to come up with examples. But like that was the way to prove that you weren't like opposed to racial equity work was to like <laughs> counterintuitively. It, it's yeah, such it, a like weird contradiction. It is. No, it is. It's like, it's like in Salem, like only true witches will deny being witches. Right. You're going to get burned at the stake either way. So you might as well admit you're a witch, I guess. Well, so um, what
0: would be an example of something like, like, in what way would you admit? So it sort of sounds like an AA meeting, you know, like everybody stand up and say like, hello, my name is Katie and I'm a racist. Like, what would be an example of something that you would, that you would say to like acknowledge your own, your own racism or your own complicity?
2: I can't remember if I use this as an example, but I remember definitely thinking about it at the time and feeling guilty that I had like, for example, in a hallway, um, a black coworker, black male coworker, passed me by, and he was wearing a suit, and he looked really sharp. And I, I remember saying, "Looking sharp," like I gave him a compliment. And and going through this work uh, with Robin, I remember like replaying that, like you know, interracial interaction I had over and over in my head. And what I came up with that was racist about it was that maybe i like hold black people's fashion to like a lower um standard and like it, like i started asking myself would i if he was white would i've said looking sharp or did i give him that compliment because he's black and so, like, that's like an example I could have. And
0: how was the sort of the, the atmosphere in these rooms? Were there people there who obviously didn't want to be there, uh, or was it a sort of wholehearted like buy in?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think in, there's a lot of vocal buy in, but I think in retrospect, there were probably people who were critical of it at the time who um,
0: were just very quiet. Right, right. And so you did this for a year. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and the organization, is it, is it a nonprofit? Yep. Yep. Performing arts nonprofit. And I, this is, uh, you, you probably don't know the answer to this, but do you have any idea how much they, they paid for this service? I don't, but I think, and I can't say how I remember
2: knowing this, but I, I heard something that it was just a lot. I never heard like a specific number, but just a oh, fuck done. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh. And I meant to say that part of the work too was, um, they formed, uh, white affinity groups
0: that we were encouraged. Oh my god, that's not that like that sounds so racist. I know it fucking is racist. Is it, we form um, white power groups.
2: Yeah, yeah, white affinity groups, and that we were encouraged to attend. Um, and POC affinity
0: groups. And what would happen at these groups?
2: Okay, so uh, this is where I drew my personal line. i was starting to get uncomfortable with some of the stuff that was happening. So I never attended a white affinity group, but. The way it was explained to me is that it was like a space for white people to like work out work out their racism without putting that burden um, on on people of color. So that you know, it's like the emotional labor argument that that there could be like harm done to a POC just having to listen to white people kind of work through their own racism. So so those groups were um, separate for a long time. I think they might have might have come together right as I was leaving but I it, it seemed to me like a pretty easy line to draw in the sand and go I'm not ever gonna go to a group just based on the color of my skin like that doesn't feel good to me
0: so what happened to you so you started this out being a true believer and a fan of Robin DiAngelo yep. So, yep. so what happened um yeah
2: I she led um she led a small group with like just my department. And it was, <laughs> the story requires a little bit of context. Um, but it was like my, I don't I want the word term red pill. What's the color pill, Katie, when you?
0: Purple. I don't,
2: I don't, I don't know. Okay, purple. It was my purple pill moment where you like still believe in systemic racism and you still think Black lives matter, but you like want to take a step away from Robin D'Angelo, whatever color pill that is. <laughs> I took that pill uh on that day, um, do you mind like a little bit of context? Oh, no please for... please okay so um, I had designed a poster for the Odyssey. The poster featured it had this like decorative element it's this like grecian geometric like interlocking pattern in the design of the poster, and I had based i had drawn that pattern based off of like a source image I had found of of an actual pot, a piece of pottery from ancient Greece. And, uh, so the poster had a little bit of like authenticity or whatever to it. And everybody loved the poster. Uh, My supervisors signed off on it. We printed, I don't know, like 30,000 of them. And then sometime later I'm like brought into my boss's office and he's a great guy. I love my boss. But we have this like really serious conversation where he goes, it has been brought to my attention that there are swastikas in this poster. And and like I look at it and yeah, okay. I guess I mean if you like isolate sort of on that pattern where the angles intersect, like, yeah, swastika. But again, they're not isolated. It's like this completely contiguous pattern. Um, and one that I had sourced from a pot in ancient Greece. So, um, but yeah, and that predates like 1930s Germany, as far as I can tell. But so, I mean, I ask, I go, Oh my goodness, is like a customer really mad? They like saw it and he goes, no, it was an anonymous coworker, Katie. Who like blew, who saw who saw a swastika in the design and blew the whistle on me, and and he I, I'm pretty sure I know who it is, but he went straight to Robin and Victoria, our racial sensitivity consultants, and told them about it. Oh my god! And yeah, and at this point, like I did not have a direct conversation with them about the design. It was being handled by like my department head and 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 ultimately what was decided. Was that we were not going to change the design? Um, it like went up the chain. It went up the chain like a few pay grades, and the executive director is like culturally Jewish or ethnically Jewish, and so he he got the final say, and he was like, "I'm a Jew. This is fine." And um, mm-hmm. and so yeah, we didn't change the design, and uh, and you know it never really became an issue. Uh, no one else really ever. Ever saw the hidden swastikas, and and the reason we didn't change it is because I, I could back up the design choice with with like my source image. If anyone was ever really offended, I could I could provide that, and we figured that was that would be just fine. But fast forward to um, Robin DeAngelo conducting my department's sort of small group session, which now we're talking like twelve people, right, instead of a hundred, and she began the session by instructing the white people in the room not to defend ourselves if something was said in the session that made us feel um, defensive that uh, that we were supposed to use this as an opportunity to practice listening and and that any reactions sort of defensive reactions we might have to something that said that would be a sign of white fragility so, we were just basically told not to speak for like a little bit, which I didn't think too much about because again, like I want to do this right. And like, I want to impress Robin or whatever. But like literally the next thing that happened is it was handed over to Victoria and Victoria says, I've been wanting to talk to this group about uh, the poster with the Nazi imagery, which like pause for a second not every one of my coworkers had even heard about this controversy so she just says it like it's this like thing that we all know about i've got coworkers whose heads flip over to me and they're giving me like what the fuck faces because they didn't ever hear about a nazi poster you know and they know that and so you're the designer so of they
0: know course who is i'm the designer for it.
2: there isn't right. it's me but then right. victoria she proceeds to go I'm not going to ask who designed it. It doesn't matter who designed it. Like, like it's this great mystery. Oh my but she says, it's a great example of how subconscious racism works. This person, she said, this person who made this, they didn't mean to put Nazi images into the poster. But this is how it works. These images, they just bubble up from our subconscious. And then she like went on to say that like Odysseus's ship which is like in the poster like that represented colonialism. And and there's like trumpets and she had like this other crazy point she made about the trumpets and I mean I'm like I can hear my heart like pumping in my ears at this point because I feel so trapped and and like it's a silly example all things told like I didn't I didn't lose my job, it didn't get like leaked out on the internet. Like it was you know,
0: but it's embarrassing.
2: It was so embarrassing and and i I just remember feeling how unfair it was that I had just been told to not defend myself and now I'm being told that I've got like swastikas on the brain that is like coming up from my subconscious, which which like I mean if you want an example of white fragility as a silencing tactic, that's it. like black and white. And it's and it's unfalsifiable. She got to say, "Hey, we're about to like make some accusations here, and and if you have any issue, I mean, she didn't say this explicitly, but you know, what what ended up happening is that if if we had any issues with what was being said, and I definitely did to speak to even object to what was being said would prove that I was, you know, my fear was that it would prove that I was opposed to racial equity work and and i'm not like i'm not opposed to that but i'm also not a secret nazi and 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 it's so stupid because the statement that there was something subconscious going on in the poster design is just patently untrue and and anyone who designs knows that like the design process isn't exactly like an exercise in free association you don't just like stare at a blank canvas and like let your deep dark Biases like find their way onto your page. So, and and Katie, I mean, sorry, one more thing, you tell them I'm upset. I'm still upset four years later. Um, How entrenched in like an anti Semitic worldview would you even have to be to have swastikas bubble up like from your inner consciousness, like in, like you're just generating them as you like move about the world? I, I don't even know how entrenched you'd have to be it could have been so easily, we could have just gotten back on track so easily if I had felt comfortable to interject, if it hadn't been given this instruction um, to not defend myself. And so, so anyways, that was the purple pill moment for me. And it, and it really was because after that, I, I thought a lot more critically about everything that was being said. And, and it really just came down to, well, wait a second this is something I know a lot about. Like I know my own mind. I know the process that actually went into making this design. And I know that these women have it wrong. So if they're wrong about this and they set up this situation where I can't even say it out loud, like what else are they wrong about? And and it's not to say they were wrong about everything. It's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but I just, I engaged my brain in a much different way after, um,
0: after that, you know, there's something like the tactic, like, clearly doesn't work. I mean, for some certain subset of people, they will always be true believers or whatever. But sure. what they're also doing, like, you're an example of this by, you know, by making these sort of arbitrary rules, you can't defend yourself. What they're doing is driving you away from their message in the first place. So it's also like yeah. incredibly self defeating on their part. So, okay, so you have this sort of purple pill moment. You start, uh, evaluating these sessions more skeptically. And so how does that also change things for you, like within sort of the organization, within your life? Um, was it destabilizing? Did it change your politics? What was the sort of evolution there like?
2: I mean, I, I I just became more and more critical of of the EDI work. And I, I started to just notice where people were being silenced. I started noticing where situations, I started noticing how just the whole process, like lacked curiosity that we weren't really being invited to give feedback or engage. And, um, and it felt very much like there were, there were right answers to questions and wrong answers to questions. Um, I mean, like, like I I had to come up with ways personally that were kind of small in the organization to just draw my own little line and there were that I didn't think would get me fired or anything like that, but things like I didn't attend white affinity groups uh, I did not put uh, pronouns in my email signature um, and that was starting to become something of a litmus test to uh, for like what like how how into this work you were. There's the stereotypes so of probably what I did too like listening to Sam Harris and um, and reading Katie Herzog. Um, uh, but I mean I'm still I, I would say I'm still liberal um, I'm just... I really question things that feel quasi-religious and I, I grew up evangelical Christian, so it, it's not that hard for me to to see the similarities. Uh, and like looking back, I mean this whole like confessional thing where you admit that you're racist and, and you, you sort of count the ways in which you are and you're atoning that's it, it, it's, it's straight up religious. and because I remember doing it, <laughs> I remember doing it as a Christian, like back when I was a Christian. And I would say, you know, the, like in church, like the best Christians are the ones who are in the most admitting that they're super sinful.
0: And so did you feel like you had people within the organization you could express these views with? Or did you feel like you just had to keep your mouth shut?
2: There would be there would be sort of like hushed conversations here or there. Um, I remember one, like at a restaurant with a certain certain group of coworkers after a bottle of wine stuff started to come up that I wasn't the only one who had felt like a specifically like our department's um, one-on-one session was fucking ridiculous. And, and once I sort of said it out loud, you know, other people at the table did. So I, like, I know I wasn't alone, but like back in the building and like while the work was happening, there's no dissent. You just couldn't, afford to. It was, uh, it was too charged. Mm -hmm. And what did you end up doing? So you, are you still employed by the organization? No, no. I, uh, um, I moved and, and when I moved geographically, uh, that was when I left and I left on good, on good notes, you know, overall, like I wouldn't say that this, I wouldn't say like these trainings and stuff, and even that like overriding culture completely marred my experience at the company. I think it was a, it was a great company, really good friends with, with my coworkers still. Um, was
0: this part of the reason that you left?
2: I mean, I, I do think overall I was starting to just feel in my life like a little suffocated and a little bit like I couldn't say out loud things I wanted to say. Uh, yeah. It's it, it probably a little too simple to say like, that's why I left that organization. It was time to leave. Um, it was it was just like the next step in my career is that I went uh, full time freelance. But I was like personally very over a lot of um, you know, the cancel culture and the the finger pointing and the uh the the thought crimes. It yeah, starting to feel a lot.
0: So this is four years ago, right?
2: Mm-hmm. It is, four years ago is when it started.
0: Okay. And so how how has it been for you to see this sort of enter the national conversation in recent, you know, and you were sort of at the, you were ahead of the curve um, to see what was happening.
2: Yeah. I would say that like arts organizations were probably, were behind academia, but ahead of other organizations doing the work. and And that makes sense to me because there's, It's just, it's just the nature of the people who work, who work in performing arts organizations. Um, you know, they, they, like, they want good in the world. Like they want to stop racism and, and everybody sees their own particular art that they're affiliated with is like being the tool that's gonna, you know, that's super powerful that has that agency to change. Mm -hmm. Um, are you worried about, about the state of our country? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm worried in the sense that, like, what is what a stupid fucking way to have a really important conversation? That's mm-hmm. that's how I feel about it. And it it's not that it's not that I'm worried that a bunch of people are out there exaggerating problems. I just feel like it's it's a really stupid way to have a conversation that we should be having. And mm-hmm. and like, it strikes me that like the Robin DiAngelo approach like focuses on the wrong. Th- Thing. It just gets really like navel-gazing and focuses on on individual interactions, uh, like in, interracial interactions, as opposed to like huge actual systemic problems in our country, and and class doesn't get brought up enough into it, and. I don't know. I think about like however many hours we spent in that room with Robin, if we had all just like written postcards to senators or something, or did something else at that time, instead of talk about like me, the secret Nazi, um, how much more productive would that have been?
0: Besides the fact that it's not productive, I'm also concerned about backlash, you know, I mean,
2: right, right, right. If the, if the cost of having the conversation, I mean, the average American I don't think is racist. Um, and I think, I think the average American wants to have, wants to have the, the right conversation about race in America. But if, but if we're being told that there's only one very specific way to have that conversation and, and you don't happen to agree with it then then it feels like you then can't have the conversation. Like you're you're not included. There's no room for like dissent or or like a different like we can all agree like here's the problem. But it seems like and I and I saw it at my company, it seemed like there was no room to disagree about how, you know, how we solve it. To, just to say it really simply.
0: Did do you think it had any impact on the way that you actually in your life interact with black people or other people of color?
2: I would say I've now gone back to normal, um, but when I was in it, yeah, it made me much more cautious. And because because you, were, I mean, and I I did believe it. I believed that you know the that there was sort of an intrinsic, like racism to me and in my interactions. And so I was worried, uh, as I interacted with, you know, my POC coworkers, you know, you, I was worried, Oh, am I going to say something wrong? Or can I compliment my coworkers hair? Like hair is such a fucking loaded thing. Um, and, and, and faced with the choice of like, do I stick my neck out and like go for this interaction and then potentially, you know, have to pull like a Robin D'Angelo like apology with a script she gave us, or do I, you know, just put my head back down and sit back down on my computer? It is often easier to to do the latter.
0: Yeah, the irony is if she's making actual relationships between white people and black people or people of color worse, it's just like, how is this, how is this actually helpful for anybody except for Robin D'Angelo?
2: Yeah. How did, how did we ever have like interracial friendships before Robin D'Angelo? How did we ever get along before?
0: Robin D'Angelo doing her best to make uh, white people and black people get along worse. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, yeah, of course. My pleasure, Katie.
0: All right, Jesse, we are back. We're back in 2023.
1: That was crazy, man. That shit she went through was crazy.
0: Right. It was crazy. So one thing that has changed since 2020 is that there has been a huge fucking backlash to DEI. To
1: this brand of DEI in, in particular.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like Chris Rufo, Ron DeSantis, all of these people have really made it part of their politics. Ron DeSantis, this is part of Ron DeSantis' Ron DeSantis's presidential platform. And I think that is having an actual effect on how DEI is being done and if it's even being done at all. So I asked on Twitter if people had been through, had been through trainings in the last few years and then been through trainings now, just to try to get a, a sense of how they've changed, if they changed at all. Frankly, it wasn't a super helpful exercise because some people were like, yeah, DEI, I just uh, did a DEI training in 2020 when it was all about race. I did a DEI training in 2023 and it was more about gender, which I think does show sort of how trendy these things can be. But a lot of other people said it hasn't changed at all. So I don't think I, I don't think my exercise was particularly useful. Um, but we have seen things like lawsuits. So there have been lawsuits about these trainings, both from people who had to undergo trainings and who allege that the trainings themselves are racist. I'm talking about white people here. And there have been lawsuits from people alleging that the companies that pledged all of these diversity goals didn't live up to their own pledges. So I think that also is part of this ongoing backlash against DEI.
1: Yeah, there's also like, there's just been a certain power to some of the anecdotes that came out. There was actually, we had already planned to rerun this episode, but there was just this recent Awful story, um, also involving a lawsuit. It, we'll include a link uh, to this article in the National Post running down what happened. Uh, that's a Canadian outlet. So, this is an awful story. It involves a guy named uh, Richard Bilkstow. I'm sure i mispronounced mispronouncing that. I looked for a pronouncer online. That was all I could find was Bilkstow. Um, anyway, he'd been an educator in Toronto schools for decades, including a principal. He focused on sort of non traditional over 18 students. Um, Then he was subjected to a diversity training, and uh, here's what happened next, according to the National Post. His stellar career took on a sour note after he was bullied in a diversity, equity, and inclusion training session for Toronto District School Board administrators in 2021, according to a lawsuit Bilkstow filed in court. His sin, in the eyes of facilitators at the Kojo Institute, that's all caps Kojo), was his questioning of their claim that Canada was a more racist place than the United States. Canada wasn't perfect, he said, but it still offers a lot of good. For the rest of the training session and throughout a follow-up training session the week after, facilitators repeatedly referred to Bilkstow's comments as examples of white supremacy, naturally. Oh my god. The experience was humiliating, particularly because Bilkstow placed a great emphasis on equality and anti-discrimination during his career. That's the end of the excerpt. So if you want the full details, you can read the story. He complained there was a lawsuit and so on. The ending is horrible. Bilkstow recently killed himself and his family and friends believe the training was directly responsible. That's the kind of claim I want to be careful about. We need to be really cautious about attributing a suicide to a single cause. That's sort of reporting on suicide 101. But either way, it does appear this incident had a major impact on him. Well, Jesse, this is
0: clearly a terrible story, but I saw a column in the Toronto Star that purported to debunk this narrative. What did you think of that?
1: Yeah, so the, the Toronto Star ran this column July 27th, headlined, A Toronto Principal Suicide Was Wrongly Linked to Anti-Racism Training. Here's what was really sad. So the author of this is a woman named Shri Paradkar. Uh, I might be mispronouncing your last name. I apologize. She's the social and racial justice columnist for the Toronto Star. She's also an internal omsbud, like omsbud's woman, um, who... You can report your colleagues' racist acts or angles to her, so she has that like management role. <laughs> while she's also a columnist, which strikes me as like maybe not ideal, maybe a little bit of a conflict of interest. Wait, so she's the
0: she's like the the microaggression cop?
1: Yeah, she's like the hall monitor for racism or something.
0: <laughs> I, I, whatever. Anyway, I want that job. I know
1: it's a separate issue, but um, I read her column. We'll include a link to it. It does not debunk anything. It it relies on this like very. Pedantic thing where it's like um, I, I forget exactly how I phrased it a moment ago, but but what what did they call him a white supremacist? She's like, no, no, they didn't call him a white supremacist. They said he was helping to uphold white supremacy. A huge difference. Huge difference when we're talking about the question of whether or not someone dealt with like a humiliating training that might have had an impact on their mental health. I'll invite people to read the column and decide for themselves. But it it basically confirms that this was a very cultish bullying training and Sri Paradkar, um likes this person, Ojo Thompson. Uh, she mentions in the column that they had, she had done trainings at the Toronto star. She didn't mention that she tweeted like celebrating that this was a great training basically. So it's like, I don't know, man, I, it, it annoyed me that they ran this call and pretending it debunked anything. I don't think it did.
0: And there's an investigation ongoing, Right.
1: Yeah, the uh, the Toronto School District uh, launched an investigation and is, is looking into this more.
0: Okay, so one thing that I'm not sure that the family and friends or the spokesperson or whoever has mentioned here but I am curious about is I wonder if – so there's the training itself, which was clearly, according to the family and friends, traumatizing – and clearly and according to him because he sued the school – And the debunker. The, right, right. <laughs> yeah. But – Do we know anything about sort of the aftermath of this in terms of his, like, was he made a social pariah? Because I can imagine if he goes through this experience and at the same time, his call he basically like goes through a cancel culture campaign, that that would also contribute to declining mental health.
1: Yeah, my sense is like his administrators didn't really support him. And there was this sort of, um, I forget what it's called up there, this like employment board ruling in his favor where this this administrative body said, like, yes, what he experienced caused him real harm. So it seems like it was pretty serious, whatever the details. Well,
0: I saw a TikTok where um, a man accused him of white fragility. So I don't know who to believe.
1: I was like, that made me too mad and was too stupid. I didn't even want to bring it up. It was this smarmy white guy, like, really trying to heap dirt on the dead guy in a way I found disgusting. But a lot of the stuff is just very cultish. I thought the Toronto Star column supposedly debunking it came across as very cultish Um, at one point. People like both the TikTok and this column basically say he's not allowed to disagree with the trainer. How right. could you disagree with a black woman telling right. you about racism? Well, you're definitely allowed to. You're allowed to disagree with whoever you want, especially if it's in a, it, the whole thing. is. Don't join cults, people. That's my takeaway.
0: You can disagree with one black person, and that is Candace Owens. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the same day the National Post article ran the Wall Street Journal uh Published an article on how the market for so-called chief diversity officers—that's uh, a role you fulfill on our show—the um, market <laughs> for the these. Furry. Yes, yes. Trace is our chief diversity officer. Anyway, Trace's job there may be in jeopardy because this article said that um, while these positions, CDOs, were all the rage after George Floyd's murder, huge increase in the number of uh, major successful companies that had them this is cooling off, like the appetite them for them is cooling off. They're being laid off. There's fewer open positions. So the article was pretty sympathetic to these so-called CDOs, but I'm wondering if in some cases like they brought with them the sort of confrontational radical weirdness we heard Shannon talk about or which Richard uh, Bilkstow ran headfirst into during his own training.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I'm not really convinced that employers should be involved in this business at all, like, why are employers in the business of reeducating their employees or indoctrinating their employees? I don't, I don't really understand. I mean, I know a little bit about the history of it because uh, solely because Helen Lewis did a podcast called "The New Gurus," where she talked about how diversity trainings really started in I believe the nineteen seventies in law firms who were afraid of basically being sued over over discrimination, but they they crept from being basically telling people the law this is you can't discriminate this is the law don't do this don't do this to this thing where i mean there are diversity trainings i i learned about one recently and i don't think this is uncommon where you gather all the people together and you have the white people confess racist moments why is it an employer's job to facilitate that kind of thing. To me, it just seems like an absolutely fraught and possibly traumatizing experience for the people involved in this, which of course, yes, is going to lead to lawsuits. So so there is something sort of ironic about this, is this thing that was started to prevent lawsuits is now contributing to lawsuits.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the the obvious answer which you alluded to is like, there's nothing wrong with doing a training, explaining to people what the law is. And a lot of one of the reasons diversity trainings caught on was like, as a potential shield against lawsuits. But Right, to now verge into territory where instead of preventing lawsuits, you're providing fodder for them. I think this will hopefully go down as like a particularly bad fad. Maybe five years from now, we'll just have those normal, boring, vanilla, uh, don't say this, don't do that trainings. There's nothing wrong with those. They just shouldn't, they shouldn't be these like intense spiritual awakenings or whatever.
0: Right. And there aren't, there are some alternatives like Chloe Valdery, she has this program called Theory of Enchantment. I haven't looked deeply into this. I, I do think Chloe does some really interesting work, but she leans heavily into the teachings of Martin Luther King Jr. And her her project is about treating people like human beings, not about criticizing people. It's about empowering people and uplifting people. So it's it's rooted in this sort of love and compassion. So to me, that does sound much more positive than having everybody get together and confess their sins or separating people into racial affinity groups or worst case scenario, like this Kojo training, berating people for making a statement like Canada isn't as racist as the U.S., which if you're an American... That's a, that would be like an anti-racist statement.
1: They're, they're so much more racist than we
0: are. <laughs> but Canada. still,
1: we have no but despite
0: left. that, and despite the fact that I think that Chloe is a compassionate person and, and a very interesting thinker, I still am not convinced that this is something that, that workplaces need to be engaged in, period.
1: I just can't imagine getting dragged to one of these, like a mandatory one. Like you just, it just must be an out-of-body experience. Be like, Bob from accounting is crying. Talk <laughs> about how he's... Afraid a black colleague thought he didn't want to, sh- like, yeah. Who thought this was a good idea? It's
0: just so I've been, I can't say much about this, but I've been working on this story about some diversity trainings that took place in 2020, uh, unrelated to, to this stater in Seattle. And I talked to a couple people who told me about going through this process where you sit in a room and you confess you're like the worst, the most racist thing that you've done. And, and one person told me that there's sort of an art to doing this where you want to confess the thing that is just racist enough to sort of fit the metric, but also won't actually make anybody think that you're racist, you know, so something like,
1: <laughs> right, yeah, I committed a ton of hate crimes. Yeah. Really
0: bad. Yeah, yeah, nobody's gonna say that what you're gonna say is something like, uh, you know, I overheard somebody saying something racist, and I told my black friend about it, you mm-hmm. know, emphasizing that, like, you have a black friend, but you did something that actually harmed your black friends.
1: And to emphasize, I do have a black friend. <laughs> exactly. In conclusion, my friend was black. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So I checked in with Shannon to see how she felt about all this three years later. And she said, quote, I wish I had spoken out for myself during that. Shannon is a Nazi meeting. It wouldn't have been that bad. I had a great work family at the Seattle Rep, some of my best friends to this day, and they would have had my back. It was some just of my this... best
1: friends who are all black. <laughs>
0: It was just this weird energy in the air of not wanting to rock the boat. But calling out silly nonsense and caring about real racial issues are not mutually exclusive. So uh, thanks again to Shannon. Uh, We'll put her website in the show notes along with the poster that got her accused of being a subconscious anti-Semite. Jesse, do you want to look at it?
1: Yeah, let me... um...
0: Okay, I dropped it in our notes there.
1: Oh, it just says, I hate... I, Shannon, Lloyds hate Jews? (laughs) Oh, that's actually... No, I... Okay, you guys will get a kick out of this when you see it. It's unbelievable that anyone thought, "Oh, you know what?" You can sort
0: of see this, Alaska. You can see, you
1: can see this, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: All right, Shannon. Sorry.
1: Sorry, Shannon. You're, you're an canceled.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, you're canceled from the bar pod design until we need another update.
1: Do we do for this kind of mostly rerun episode? Do we do our normal end of episode stick? I guess okay. we have to. This has been blotter reported. We're produced with help from uh, tracing Woodgrains and the mysterious Lex. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, repent, repent, repent.
0: And I'm Katie Herzog, and also remember, Jesse, Thai sex workers do take tips.